16 hours. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to what will be another amazing broadcast um, I have with me uh, uh, today, um, uh, Dr. Carlos Torres. Um, who is the director of the Paulo uh, Ferrer Institute at the UCLA Graduate School of Education. He's done some great work in his institute um, and looking at the teaching and philosophy of Professor Ferrer. Um, he's authored 40 books uh, and more than 150 research articles, uh, done a lot of work in uh, South America. And so I'm just excited to have him uh, with me today um, uh, welcome, Carlos. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much for the invitation. It is truly an honor. And, but I must confess that I found this time and age both spiritually and psychologically very difficult, given the invasion mm. of Ukraine. Ukraine yes. is a young democratic republic, as you know, invaded by a neighborhood bully who believes in illiberal democracy as his way mm. of governing. I personally think that he has made a serious mistake in invading a country with proud people who are willing to die to defend the land or their democracy, their independence, autonomy from Russia. Worse than that, I think Putin has made a miscalculation of magnitude. And honestly, I hope that he will find a way out of his mistake without resorting to nuclear weapons. So here we are, and we must work on the topics of conversation, dialogue about the relevance of Paulo Freire. So, again, thank you for the invitation. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, um, it has – I echo everything that you've said, Um, and and I, too, am hoping for a peaceful resolution um, to this conflict and this, this invasion um, as well, and um, and and we've seen this, you know, before. And the difference is now that there that you you never can tell what can happen when someone's ego is bruised. Um, that you know, this is a very delicate situation, and I I hope all of the the world leaders are as as aware of it as um, we are. Um, this day, so thank you so much for for uh, bringing that to our attention, and um, and so um, I I want to start uh, as usual by asking you to tell us a little bit about your your institute um, and and exactly how it came to be. I uh, did I had heard a little bit about your work. Um, we we had for those of you who uh, are joining us. Um, we had a great conversation even before we got online. We have um, uh, Professor uh, Torres and I have several uh, places in common. Obviously, he's done a lot of work, a lot more work, year, uh, long work and um, career-long work in uh, Brazil. And I've just started this work over the last decade. But we've worked in Brazil, 
at, and also in South Africa. So I'm, we have a lot in common and a lot to explore in just 30 minutes. But um, tell me a little bit about the Institute and how it came to be at UCLA. Well, the Institute is the result of a conversation at UCLA with Paulo Freire. I was uh, an assistant professor. I arrived to UCLA in 1990. 91, I invited him to give a lecture in ARA at the time in Chicago, and then he came wow. to UCLA. Wow. While we were at UCLA with his best friend, Moisir Gadotti, who is also one of my best friends, uh, we had a meeting with some of the faculty. I must confess that in 1990, the School of Education, the Graduate School of Education at the time at UCLA was not what it is now, a social justice education model. It was a very bureaucratic, technocratic model, but few professors came for a conversation with Paulo Freire. Don't even think that everybody, just few, four or five. Mm-hmm. And some of them, which is not unusual, have children who are teachers or work in education, and uh, they, they brought their children and so on. And about two or three new assistant professors came as well. In that conversation, I thought that Ferreira was extremely happy. And after the conversation, Moisir and Gadotti, Ferreira and myself, went to have a coffee. And Ferreira got, uh, how can I put it, subdued, sad. And I said, mm. Paolo, what is wrong? And he said, well, you know, I had such extraordinary meeting today, but I know that my days are numbered, and one day I will die, and I will not have the possibility of engaging with people like we did today. Mm. And Masir looked at me, I looked at him, and said, but look, Pablo, let me tell you one thing. And I cracked a very traditional joke, and I said, Pablo, there are three things that we cannot avoid. First, we cannot avoid to be leaving uh, educational reform. Secondly, we cannot avoid to pay taxes. And third, we cannot avoid to die. But the <laughs> fact that we all die doesn't mean that we cannot uh, create an institute that will be uh, dealing with the things that you have been trying to do throughout all your life. And mm-hmm. he looked at us and said, okay, that's fine, but I don't want a fellowship. I don't want a church. What I want are people who reinvent me not to repeat me. And that is the mantra of the Institute. So we started. Moisir mm. Gadotti is extremely efficient. He's a great philosopher, but also a great administrator. And he created the Paulo Freire Institute in Sao Paulo, 1991. I, I am one of the directors. And then we began to expand the institutes. I created another one in, uh, in Buenos Aires, and then the one at UCLA. And then there is an institute in Sao Paulo, um, connected with the Sao Paulo and, the, and, the, and, and, and my institute in um, Italy, Portugal, Spain, India, South Africa, etc. So mm. we, be, we, not a franchise, but we become a group of friends that believe in the same construction of social justice. And that is an international construction, as it should be. Now, the Institute is an institute that I was about to create uh, private uh, because mm-hmm. I read a, a, a memo from some bureaucrat at UCLA, Sunday professor at UCLA, I was then by that time a full professor. They should not uh, be directors of anything without authorization. 
So I sent a note to my dean at the time, and I said, uh, please uh, give me an authorization. I'm going to create in private a Paulo Freire Institute because I don't want to have any bureaucratic control over it. And less than two days later, I was director of the Latin American Center at the time, the dean invited me to a meeting. So I said to my secretary, what did I do? I mean, why do I have to go with a meeting with the dean? I have avoided meetings with deans all my life. So I went, mm-hmm. and <laughs> voila, she, came, she kissed me. The, 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 the chair was there, gave me a hug. So I said, oh, this is good. And they said, well, what are you going to create an institute outside UCLA with such a prestigious name? And he said, because I don't want to be negotiating with bureaucratic uh, environments. <laughs> and then they you said, no, 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 no. You do it. We will be out. We will not touch it. And if you don't mind, I'll give you some funding. And I said, okay, good. Let me think about it. So then I accepted and we created the institute. And this fall will be 20 years of work. Mm. Congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. And, you know, just to get into a little bit about the book itself, uh, written in 1968, um, you know, it always amazes me, uh, Carlos, that um, how things happen in cycles, if they even cycle. You know, it's just sometimes you can look back over periods of time and you wonder, how much things change, if at all. And it is almost as if uh, Professor Freire could have written this book two years ago, four years ago. Um, When you start thinking about what's happening all over, not just in one place in the world, but right here in the United States, I just think about how one one aspect of what we've been pushing is uh, uh, what I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, a central part of what uh, Professor uh, um, advocated for was for learners, and I'm just going to say learners, not all children, but learners to be critical of established structures and and to question and to and to think and not just accept things as they are number 1 but secondly that also to treat learners as co-creators of knowledge and these are things that we it seems like we're still fighting today um that they're not empty vessels that you pour information in um, but that we, but but the whole idea of creating critical thinkers um, is something that we're still fighting for. And and just when I think about um, the number of books that uh, are being banned on a on a now a daily basis by boards of ed across the United States, and even this work, uh, one of my colleagues. Um, in Brazil has shared with me that there's a movement that this work also not be allowed to be taught in Brazil. That's correct. Yeah. And so, you know, this, I I think more so 
now. Um, it, it just seems like because we know so much that we should be able to do better, but we're not. No, unfortunately, let me put it this way. The situation in Brazil is a typical political process in which a right-wing government, let's say a mini-Trump, is trying to use Freire as a great enemy of his government, right? But the interesting paradox is that if you really look at uh, the tension between private and public schooling, right? The public school is uh, underfunded. The teachers don't have the degree of qualification that you have in private schools in Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. But the interesting part is that if you go to the private schools, a great deal of the model, the legacy that is being implemented in these quality schools come from Freire and come from some of the great contributions of Freire. I can talk about that in a minute. But honestly, I think that leaving aside what uh, Bolsonaro is trying to do, which is, of course, part of his model to be uh, uh, re-elected, and in many respects is, um, is part of a crisis in different other institutions in Brazil, um, I think Freire continues to be the most uh, well-known philosopher of education in the world at the moment. Yeah. Not only that, uh, in 2016, a, 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 a professor in the UK, Elliot Green, compiled the most cited publications in the social sciences. And he showed that Pedagogy of the Oppressed ranks third in the 25 most cited books in the social sciences, after mm. Thomas Kahn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and Everett mm. Roger, who was a professor at Stanford where he studied, Diffusion of Innovations. In fact, mm. Pedagogy of the Oppressed is ranked also the most cited book in the field of education. As we mm -hmm. argue that this is because Freire produced a rapid paradigm shift in educational sciences and mm -hmm. beyond. So let mm -hmm. me give you one sentence from Freire to uh, endorse your, your arguments about how current he could be. Let me go to a, um, a sentence that I published in Spanish in one of my books in Spanish and I translate. And I quote, this is from Freire. Whereas the violence of the oppressors prevents the oppressed from being fully human, the mm. response of the latter to his violence is grounded in the desire to pursue the right to be human. As the mm -hmm. oppressors dehumanize others and violate their rights, they themselves are dehumanized. As mm. the oppressed, fighting to be human, take away the oppressor's power to dominate and suppress they restore to the oppressor the humanity they had lost in the exercise of oppression. It is only the oppressed who, by freeing themselves, can free their oppressor. They later, as the oppressed class, can free neither others nor themselves. So your point is very well taken. What Frederick wrote back in the 60s is pretty much what today is happening everywhere. Yes, absolutely. And the idea of uh, a colonized curriculum, um, I, hear, I hear that 
over and over again um, about the, using the, the analogy of, you know, colonizers and the colonized, but that applying that to what happens in a curriculum and what we've seen over and over again is that history, at least the desire, and I've had guests on for the last year that we've been talking about this, and this comes up over and over again, where the desire of the colonizer to tell and retell history in such a way that glorifies the colonizer and in a lot of ways erases a lot of the the inhumanity that has been inflicted upon the oppressed. And, and when I think about um, even over the last two weeks, we've had um, guests on that have talked about how, how so many uh, boards and other, other uh, regulatory agencies have, have said Things like, you know, in reference to things like the historical events, like the Holocaust, like can't they tell a a less violent version of that? And and so to have just thinking about the professor's work and and especially from thinking about the um, advocacy he had for social structures, like if there's a lot of social um, uh, discourse in what he wrote that is primarily accepted as, as a, one of the, the premier education uh, manuscripts um, in our history, um, is that there, there's a lot that he does to address um, social structures. Um, so what is it that, that you're, you're, I mean, I know that there's a lot of work that you are doing um, in your institute. Um, what is it that you're doing around promoting um, ideas of how curriculum should be organized? Well, that is a very powerful question. And uh, I have been asked many times, tell us how freely organized curriculum my answer is that Freire doesn't have an off-the-shelf recipe for anything. In a way, one of the difficulties that some people find with Freire is that he speaks with a meta-language because he speaks from a meta-theory model. Henry Giroux was very clever when he said about the language of possibility, talking about Freire, for a North American audience in the 1980s. And I quote Giroux, what Freire does provide is a meta-language that generates a set of categories and social practices that have to be critically mediated by those who would use them for the insights they might provide in a different historical settings and context. In other terms, Freire has become a classic. Pedagogy of the press has become a classic. By why? And I always give the same answer, and if I have two minutes, I will offer you a very succinct argument. First, what Freire created is the epistemology of the global south, which he initiated in the 60s with a post-colonial perspective, as you indicated. Now, epistemology 
is challenging for positivism, Eurocentrism, different forms of uh, epistemologies of Western tradition. In other terms, the epistemology that Freddy uses creates an ontological and methodological perspective which creates condition for a new model of curriculum and instruction. That's the first mm -hmm. element. The mm -hmm. second element is that he has created an element of emancipation. The metaphor of pedagogy of the oppressed is a pedagogy of emancipation. Via what? In his original program was via citizenship creation. We mm -hmm. cannot forget that if people are not allowed to vote, if people are neglected in their ability to be full citizens, then you cannot have democracy. And that mm -hmm. was exactly what Freire was fighting in the 60s, because mm -hmm. people who couldn't read and write were not allowed to vote. So the whole model was a model of political education. Now, mm -hmm. let me mention a third element, which I believe is central. Uh, Freire always considered that the trademark of his project is to have some work inside the capitalist state and some work outside the capitalist state. In other terms, he wanted the social movements to be very active in promoting a new model of curriculum instruction. And he was very successful when he was Secretary of Education at the Municipality of Sao Paulo in, in, in the 80s. In fourth place, I will argue, he also created a model of participatory action research with another very brilliant uh, sociologist from Colombia, Osvaldo Fasborda. We changed completely the model of research that we do. In other terms, for them, every research is an intervention. Every mm -hmm. object of research is a subject to whom you engage in dialogue. And those are crucial elements. Let me mm -hmm. conclude with two more points, which are becoming more relevant today than ever. The hermeneutics of suspicion. Hermeneutics mm. is a style of literary interpretation, right? But the suspicion part is that the texts are read with a skepticism in order to expose their purported repressed or hidden meanings. Paul Ricord, the great professor of philosophy, French professor from the University of Chicago, is in a way uh, a, a brother walking, walking uh, next to Freire, because what Freire argued is that every social relationship involves either a moment or a process of domination and oppression. And we have to recognize that, and we have to figure out how we protect ourselves and how we protect our children, our youth, from these models of alienation. Mm -hmm. And the last point, pedagogy. Freire, at the end of his life, one day were in his house with Mosir Gadotti, myself, other members of the Institute, having a coffee with him. And he said, he liked to do this all the time. He, I was next to him, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, you know, Carlos, and he talked to me. He was talking to everybody. But in Freire, the idea of talking to somebody, making a dialogue with somebody was central. He said, you know, Carlos, I made a mistake in pedagogy of the oppressed. There is a mm. missing chapter. Mm. And we, we, we listen, right? And he said, the chapter of eco-pedagogy, because the planet 
is one of the greatest oppressed entities in the world. I should mm-hmm. have written a chapter on the planet. And I think she is absolutely right. Mm. pedagogy is a tool that promotes planetarian citizenship, a concept yes. that needs an analytical and normative definition. All those principles that I just outlined are the principles that we implement in the Paulo Freire Institute, but not mm-hmm. only with communities, say, 10 miles from UCLA. Communities everywhere in the world, until the pandemic struck, I was traveling, I was living on a plane, traveling from every corner of the world, working on different things. I have 10, 12, 15 visiting scholars with me every year because they believe model that Freire has outlined literally 50 years ago. So yes. today yes. is extremely relevant in philosophy and in politics. And one more point. When I invited him in 1983 to speak at Stanford when I was doing my PhD, and Professor Martin Karnor was my advisor and uh, okay. created a, a course, uh, he used the term that I heard for the first time, politicity of education. And that's what we should be looking when we look at curriculum instruction, the politicity of education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Powerful, powerful. And and everything you just said um, just reinforces the, the, the relevance of today, um, this, this philosophy and, and the teaching. Um, you know, I'm particularly struck by what you said regarding um, the voting. Um, and here we are um, talking about uh, groups of people wholesale being denied the uh, the right to vote uh, just through kind of a stroke of a pen um, in some places where where legislators are are intentionally doing so. Um, and I think, you know, here's the thing. Is I think that as I've talked to people, not just in the United States, but other places, I'm challenged by some people that are well-meaning um, and optimistic, kind of positive people, will often ask me this question. Do you really believe that there are people who would conspire not to want, you know, people to vote in, in this whole-scale way or not want the truth to be told? And the simple answer I have is yes. Is there any advice you can give that, you know, to someone like myself, if I myself in these conversations over and over again about what the real benefit is to oppressors and those who benefit from such um, policies and practices? Um, what advice do you have about um, what we say? Um, and I, I say to convince them or to provide evidence that um, it is possible and likely that people would conspire to do that. Well, you see, Brian, uh, the history of U.S. capitalism and the question in which the U.S. society has been brought up was intimately connected with a number of things. One of them, and very important, was slavery. And from that moment on, race was intricately connected with the history of the U.S. and will continue to be so. However, you know, racism 
could be an individual feature that you can try to negotiate and dialogue and so on. But when you create conditions for other people not to be able to perform their civic duties, then you are creating institutional racism. And when there is institutional racism, it's almost impossible to have a serious democracy. That's the reason that democracy now in the U.S. is in serious trouble. But I will say just one more thing. The problem for us is how we can dialogue across diversity and Mm. how recognizing diversity makes us stronger, not weak, stronger. And that's the reason that I appreciate about some of the institutions of the federal government. Uh, In terms of integration of different racial groups, one of the most important institutions was the army. And we have this paradox. We give billions of dollars to the army to protect the U.S. when the army is an absolute example in one way of the demographic of the country. It's not in another Mm -hmm. way because of the the question how the army looks at the stratification, etc. But we don't give the same amount of money to do the same process in education. So how can we defend democracy if we don't defend civics education? Uh, Well stated, well stated. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I am, uh, I'm just, I I hate that we've reached the end of our our time together today, but, um, you know, as we discussed before we went live, um, I'm looking forward to us having another longer conversation um, offline. Um, and when you return from South America, um, hopefully one of the times that either you're in New York or I'm in L.A., uh, that we can um, sit down and have a cup of coffee and, and see where we might collaborate. And so um, I really appreciate you adding to us today and adding uh, particularly to me around um, this, uh, this brilliant uh, piece of work that, as you pointed out, more than 50 years ago and still relevant today, strongly relevant. Um, I recommend strongly anyone listening, I know a lot of you have heard of it, may not have, have um, read it in detail. I encourage you to read and even get some uh, book clubs uh, together about this piece of work. It is phenomenal and an amazing um, piece of work that, that still stands today. And so, Carlos, uh, look forward to talking to you when you're back. Um, Godspeed as you go down to South America. Be safe. And um, I, I look forward to um, our collaboration. So um, until we get a chance Thank to you, meet you, yes, go well, stay well. Thank you. Thank you.